It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Case of democracy, very good. <laughs> Howdy, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage coming to you from the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy and the Australian Studies Institute. I don't know about you, but I think there was a real sense of the penny dropping in the last week or so as it becomes clear that all the optimism, the talk of snapbacks and of bridges to the other side was revealed for what it is, wishful thinking, nostalgia and in some cases, simple misdirection. After all, there are many things about our political economy that we should not even aspire to go back to like heavy air pollution, time-wasting traffic jams, endemic unaddressed homelessness, chronic underemployment, the gender wage gap, the miserable unconscionably low dole, and of course, failed environmental policies. There are many things we need to improve, obviously. Even so, I think it's becoming clear now that the economic damage of this crisis is deeper, longer, and more structurally transformative than any recession in living memory. In the past week, companies like Qantas, Maya, the big accounting consultancies, Microsoft and others have realised they will be both smaller and different in coming years, permanently changed. The government's economic team of ministers and officials is meeting almost daily to design its policy response in light of the commitment to withdraw JobKeeper and JobSeeker in three months' time. Nobody believes the so-called cliff is either economically or politically advisable, but what comes in its place? And when will we know? Certainty is as scarce as economic growth itself, it seems, so many employers are saying the sooner the better. With me to discuss the issues is Dr Maria Teflaga, lecturer and political scientist at the School of Politics and International Relations. Maria, hi there. Do you get the sense that the coalition now realises it can't go much further without setting out the future of its COVID assistance? Yeah, I think the government has kind of been aware of this um, for some time. And and as we have sort of discussed over these past um, weeks and months, often with a rather gloomy tone, um, I think they're essentially trying to build space 
um, for themselves, uh, to give themselves the capacity to to be flexible, um, which is sort of why a lot of what they say at the moment is quite vague, which is why they sort of lean on, well, we're waiting on this report or, you know, we've set a deadline of reporting in July, so on and so forth. Um, and part of this is, you know, simply a political management exercise. Um, and part of it is, you know, sound public policy. I, we don't necessarily want governments making very rash uh, decisions, particularly if they don't have uh, good information. I mean, I think I think JobKeeper is a really good example of this, right? You know, like there's been a fair bit of criticism about JobKeeper being, you know, um, $1,500 for, for every single individual. But effectively what Treasury did was trade off efficiency for uh, rep- rapidity, right? And so you have to make these kinds of trade-offs. And now we're in a situation where, um, everyone kind of knows, for example, that construction will be impacted, but we don't really know what the precise outcome on or what the precise impact on construction will be. We know it's kind of coming. We know it's coming um, sort of next year. And so that actually gives government time to plan. There are other sectors of the economy where it's already clearer what the impacts are. And, you know, that, that's that's sort of a, a location for for government to start sort of planning sooner. But I, I just don't think that it is... Um, fair or even reasonable to um, criticise governments for actually wanting to think things through. Uh, Yes, we can always have a go at them for, you know, not always being upfront about what's going on. And of course, they have a confidence game to manage as well because they don't want to talk down the economy. But, um, you know, like part of it is like if you actually want good policy processes, well, you can't rush them. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point uh, about um, having a bit of time and, and, and using that time to get it right. Also with us is Professor Frank Yotso, who is a director of or is the director of the Centre for Climate and Energy Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Frank, welcome to the barbecue area. What did you make of Labor's olive branch on energy policy last week? Was it meaningful or gestural or neither? Yeah, hi, Mark. Well, look, um, if it is a step or a possibility for bipartisanship on climate and energy policy in Australia, then that's a wonderful thing, right? Um, I do have my doubts as to whether we can possibly get there uh, because really, you know, the climate wars have been going on for a very long time. There is unfortunately still political capital to be made for some out of keeping those conflicts going. Um, and really, you know, when you look at the uh, at, at, at the policy um, ecosystem, what what matters now really is uh, is the recession, is the, the the health and you know the the pandemic in general, uh, and so you're not really expecting that this government that in this in this term of parliament uh, will make climate change a priority very unfortunately right, and so when you take that to its logical conclusion, um, then this could very well mean that the Labour Party in fact is um, you know uh, deliberately or inadvertently kind of beating a tactical retreat on this for the time being uh, by saying uh, that they're uh, kind of willing to strike a compromise and that implies striking compromise at a relatively low level of ambition. That would be my impression uh, of where this lies, but but who knows how it'll turn out. Yes, we we might uh, be um, risking, as I think you've pointed out in a, in a piece in the conversation, risking bipartisan inaction as much as we're uh, moving to a period of bipartisan action. So I guess that's, that's a real risk. And it's look, it's also a warm welcome back to a great friend of Democracy Sausage and a doyen of the Parliamentary Press Gallery, Sky News Chief Anchor, the redoubtable Kieran Gilbert. How are you, Kieran? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, well... 
And Kieran, what's your uh, impression uh, on, on the matter Frank was just talking about, uh, the Anthony Albanese's uh, olive branch on mm. energy policy? Do you think it was, uh, was, was sort of simple tactics? Was it a, was it a wedge? Uh, look, I think it, it's, it'd be lovely if it was a genuine olive branch, but I think it was tactics. It's basically to try and neutralise this issue, which has bedeviled Labor for a long time. Uh, and they can't do anything, you know, substantive on this issue if they're not on the Treasury benches. They can't do it unless they win. So to try and neutralise this issue, just look at the leader and the climate spokesperson, both of the left, both very strong uh, and committed believers in dealing with climate, um, the climate change and the, cli- the climate crisis. So this to me is tactical. It's to try and neutralise as best they can to say, look, we're trying to be bipartisan. We're trying to just get beyond this period of, um, you know, a diabolical period of public policy that we've seen over the last decade. But there is a there is a cohort within the coalition that are never going to accept compromise. We saw that with the National Energy Guarantee, which they proposed and they didn't accept. Yeah. They, did, they weren't going to let it fly. So... I think they Albanese Butler they know that there is there's a cohort within the coalition that aren't going to accept any compromise um so whatever they offered was not going to be received um you know in willingly by the coalition so I think yeah it's tactics to try and neutralize this issue and they'll revisit when they're in office if they win the next election. Yes, Maria, it's it's a really a, a, a well-commented, well-trod ground, this this uh, problem of, of, of the climate wars, of there being very little progress. What can voters do to make sense of this, this impasse? When you think about it, uh, the main players, the two major parties, are not only against what their opponents put forward, they're against what they themselves have put forward in the past. So if you think of Labor, they're no longer for an ETS that they backed. They're no longer for a carbon tax that they backed. They're no longer for an emissions intensity scheme that they backed. You look at the coalition, it was pro-ETS to begin with under the, in the dying days of Howard. It was pro-direct action. It was pro-NEG. I mean, the National Energy Guarantee was the brainchild of um, of the current treasurer uh, when he was uh, energy minister to Malcolm Turnbull, energy and resources minister. Um, how can voters make any sense of this? You've got the parties implacably opposed to each other and implacably opposed to doing anything else, it seems. I, I think voters do have a, a good sense of of what has um, gone on here. I mean, this is just a, a catastrophic public policy uh, failure systemically over a really long uh, period of time. And I guess what is actually kind of ironic is that um, we have sort of like stepped down through increasingly um, – I guess, less necessarily straightforward options um, on climate change. But the, the reality is, is that just like the names of these policies keep changing or their so-called emphasis keeps changing, I mean, now we talk a lot about energy policy, securing our energy policy, securing our energy grid, uh, cheap energy for the future. But this is, this, you know, I mean, the whole point of Turnbull's uh, National Energy Guarantee was a way of securing a, a mechanism to deal with pricing um, carbon in effect by another, by another name. Um, and I, I guess what is important for listeners to understand is that 
the way we talk about climate change in Australia is actually fairly unique across the world, right? Uh, like it is often framed in terms of believers and non-believers rather than a series of economic choices that we make about our future. I think one of the, the biggest problems about the way we talk about climate change in this country is that we never talk about it in terms of opportunity costs. You know, it's always it's always um, exactly what we'll be sacrificing of our current lifestyles, assuming that what we are currently doing in our economy right now is actually sustainable. When when most experts sort of agree that that is not the case, and most businesses are pushing the government to do something in this space. And I think that's the reality, is that that constituency, that business constituency, um, is constantly pushing for some certainty around this because they need that. And yes, there is this core group within the coalition in which coal is, um, you know, it's tied to it's tied to what they perceive are the jobs in their community. It's tied to where they get donations from, and part of it is just almost like a cultural identity marker. But this problem isn't going away, and eventually, some kind of crash through compromise will be reached because it will simply be necessary. It will simply be no longer sustainable to continue like this. Frank, I'd say that's a very good point that Maria makes, isn't it, about uh, about consistency. That is essentially what uh, the the larger business community is looking for, some sort of uh, sense of bipartisanship to remove the sovereign risk associated with investing. Is that even if there are shortcomings in it, is that the virtue of what Anthony Albanese was proposing, that there be at least some sort of you know agreement on the framework and if Labor were to get in, it can sort of ratchet up the ambition, but um, but the framework for in, for the rules is agreed across the political divide, thus removing the giant and very real risk that's been uh, a factor for years now of an election coming along and wiping the slate clean all the time. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, um, investment uncertainty that dry, that, that comes from policy uncertainty is really what has crippled the energy industry in Australia for a very long time now. Right? And this, this goes back, um, actually well over a decade now. Um, yeah, the, 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 the compromise really fell apart or the, uh, the hope for compromise fell apart in 2009. And since then, it's been stop start, right? We've had a series of governments that, um, you know, try to make believe as if, you know, no change was going to come. But industry can't believe that because the technologies change, right? And the imperative to, to get global greenhouse gas emissions under control is there, right? There was a real shift, um, with the, with the Paris agreement in 2015, what we hear from boardrooms is that there's now a clear recognition that long term, this is a problem that humanity will tackle one way or another. Um, and so, you know, boardrooms want ultimately to see investments that are compatible with that long-term Paris Agreement ambition of arresting uh, global warming, right? Um, but Australian federal policy just simply doesn't reflect that. And that's where you've got that constant friction really between what governments um, say may or may not happen and what industry believes must happen in the long term. Now, 
what what Labour proposed there, you know, on the face of it, uh, is absolutely the right thing. Um, agree on a framework that is flexible enough um, to provide some ambition and to accommodate different levels of targets, right? And so that is the kind of model that you find in countries that are actually making substantial progress on climate change, uh, UK, Germany, a few others, right? Um, there, it's not in political contention as to whether, uh, you know, there's a shift in the economy towards low carbon. Um, the political contest is over exactly how to do it and how fast to go. That's where we should get to. Um, and that's, you know, on the face of it, what Labour proposed. But, you know, I mean, there's every reason for doubting that, that we can, in fact, get there at this point in time in Australia, unfortunately. I think one of the points on the international scene that needs to we need to factor in, in in the current context is the looming presidential election if joe biden wins and the reason i'm making this point is because of its flow on effects for our government's approach if biden wins you get this massive shift in the united states the one of the behemoth um uh, entities in that Paris deal is back and it will be a constructive force. There's that component. The other major long-standing ally of Australia is very, very forceful in its commitment to Paris and also is the host of the next COP uh, in Glasgow, and that's Boris Johnson, um, the, the British government, a Tory government. So this Morrison government is going to be feeling pressure internationally like it hasn't for, you know, the coalition hasn't for a long, long time. I would argue probably since the Paris deal was signed and with Johnson wanting a substantive deal and ambition revised and set in this next COP in, in Glasgow plus you've got in, in the White House, you know, we looking at the polls, if you, if you can believe them, um, obviously, uh, you take him with a grain of salt given the result last time, but Biden is ahead in all the swing states and if he wins, there's going, they're back in Paris and they're back to being a constructive player. So I think that international element, which has been probably a negative in terms of, you know, the Trump impact and um, its force, its, its impact on Australia is going to be a positive impact then and Morrison will find himself having to, to move. We talked a lot uh, after the election about Scott Morrison's authority uh, because he'd won an election that he wasn't meant to win. He'd done it largely off his own bat, you know, sort of powered by preternatural self-belief and God apparently. Um, and uh, and and he'd taken over a party that was that had divested itself of those big lions of division, uh, Malcolm Turnbull and, and Tony Abbott. Do you think that... Nonetheless, notwithstanding all of that authority, and it is quite, you know, it's a much more peaceful government than it has been at any time really in its you know, entire seven years of, of, of occupying the space. Do you think nonetheless that Morrison uh, doesn't have the power to, for example, um, consider what Labor's proposing in, in the climate space? In other words, if he, if he was to say, yes, let's sit down, let's end this climate war, let's agree at least on a framework, would would the, uh, the the sort of climate recalcitrance arc up? No, I think that was uh, he's pr he's pragmatic enough to do it. First of all, secondly, I think he's got the political capital to do it. Yes, he does. And thirdly, uh, some of those individuals who arced up were really doing it 
um, as a stalking horse to get Turnbull. I yeah. mean, it wasn't for a number of those people. It wasn't about climate. It wasn't about the neg. It was just about getting Turnbull. And 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 they saw it as Turnbull sort of uh, reverting to type. You know that he was essentially exactly. a, a greenie in liberal clothes, and that he was prom- you know promoting something that mm-hmm. they had forsworn not you know him not doing essentially as part of the deal to give him the leadership back in 2016 2015 mm. yeah it's interesting what what's your view on that maria oh i i do think that a large degree of of the internal climate politics within the coalition was driven by uh yeah resistance um to turnbull and that is the argument that turnbull uh makes i think fairly persuasively in his um, recent um, autobiography, I guess, Kieran, as someone who actually has access to these actors, like what are the internal discussions amongst, I guess, the sort of more uh, climate progressives within the party? Like is there a recognition towards the top of government, you know, that um, some kind of accommodation will need to be made, even if it's, you know, given another, you, you know, euphemistic name? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there is, and and in in the context of um, not not just the domestic situation, like I mentioned earlier, um, they they're going to. I, I don't see a situation where they can maintain the use of the Kyoto carryover credits. That's something which has been ridiculed internationally. Uh, so I think there's a recognition both on that f- side of um, the you know the international frame, but also domestically that they are being mugged by reality. Basically, as Frank said earlier, um, there's the technology story, there's the business story, there's the finance story. It's all heading in one direction and it's not not where the dinosaurs might hope it is. Uh, Frank, so what about the technology roadmap that the government's unveiled? Does that offer any hope? Yes, it does. So um, the process that's been kicked off, uh, to my mind, is a good one because it's one of analysis and consultation. There's a, you know, a foreshadowed annual review of technology priorities and all of that. That you know, this is the kind of process you'd put in place um, if you were serious about actually tackling that. Right. Um, the question now is, of course, um, what role will it actually be given in a policy process? Um, and crucially, what kind of resourcing and policy support will actually be provided once the handful of priority technologies will be identified, right, sometime later this year? Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's both scenarios. Um, yeah, at one end of the spectrum would be uh, to just use it as a fig leaf, right? Um, it's so the government have already said that the technology roadmap and the national priority statement will be the cornerstone of the national long-term low emission strategy which Australia will be required to submit at the next UN climate conference, right? So you could do that and you could say, well, you know, here we have five long-term uh, technology areas uh, that we hope and expect will deliver in coming decades, and that's it, right? Um, and that'll give you an excuse for not doing much at all in the short to medium term. Or you could actually uh, go and make a serious, serious effort um, in research, in development, uh, and in deployment uh, of, of zero-carbon technologies and, and position the country that way, uh, position Australia's economy to be a large-scale energy energy 
exporter and resource exporter in a carbon, in a zero carbon world, right? Mm. Um, but that, you know, that latter one will actually mean a substantial commitment, right? It's, it won't do to just allocate a few more billion dollars to ARENA and see if the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, right? Um, th- that kind of thing spells uh, investments of tens of billions per year. And uh, that's where we'd need to get to. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure that we're there yet. Um, but equally, you know, if we leave this uh, hanging for, for another decade or so, then, then we'll, miss, we'll miss that train. Frank, can I ask, um, you know, uh, given this is your field, I mean, there's a lot of talk in, I guess, the sort of more pro-climate uh, media that Australia is missing its opportunity to be a, a green energy superpower, mm. you know, as a hard-headed economist. Mm. Like, how, how realistic is uh, this prospect of us being a green energy superpower? Is this something we really should be aiming for? Well, we have the comparative advantage for it, right? Because we've got a lot of landmass, we've got a lot of, you know, sunshine, um, and and we've got, uh, you know, the track record in establishing large resource-based exports, uh, exports industries, including processing, like the LNG industry, right? And we're perceived to be a very stable place um, politically and institutionally, right? And so that puts us in a very favorable position for establishing these kinds of externally uh, oriented industries compared to most other countries. Um, the, the question is, of course, whether the cost advantage that we will have in Australia because of cheap renewable energy, cheap land, opportunity to build large-scale industries, where that cost advantage will outweigh the transportation costs, right? Um, because, yeah, I mean, renewable energy will also be cheap in Japan and Korea, um, okay? Not, not quite as cheap because, yeah, land is more expensive and sun doesn't shine quite as much. Um, and so that that's really the, the balance in the end. Um and there is, of course, also a chicken and egg situation, right? So you will get the economies of scale. Um, where are you going to put the large investments? And that becomes, you know, from purely economic point of view, um, a, a really interesting issue of timing, right? So when's the right time to strike and establish an industry like that and establish a center of gravity and, and become a major player? Now, it, it, just to finish off on that, in terms of, you know, um, in a public discourse, it's often talked about hydrogen being that Australian energy superpower future. Um, you know, the closer we look at that, and we've got a big program of research at that at ANU, right? And the closer we look at that, the more it becomes apparent that it's probably the 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 fuels and the products higher up the value chain that provide the biggest chance for Australia to be a major player in zero carbon energy and resources exports. So, for example, turn the hydrogen into ammonia and then export that ammonia. So that's much easier uh, to process for export uh, and much cheaper to transport than hydrogen itself. Uh, potentially establish a steel industry in Australia that uses hydrogen and that is zero emissions and then export that so-called green steel to the world. Um, th- this is extra uh, extra attractive because it would mean substantial amount of value added uh, within the country. But, you know, that's a multi-decadal proposition. We're talking more, you know, 20 feet, 2040s and beyond uh, rather than before. 
Yeah, well, it's nonetheless a pretty exciting prospect too. The actual idea of doing something here, of creating jobs here, of uh, elaborately transforming things here, uh, it's uh, perhaps coming back into vogue now. Uh, look, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll um, we'll look a bit more at some uh, new research that you, Frank, have out uh, about how we um, how we can stimulate the economy and how we go about selecting uh, the the projects and the programs that actually will deliver for the country in both an economic sense and in other ways as well. So back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Now, just before we go on to Frank Yotso's uh, recent research paper, just continuing on this green energy uh, uh, issue for a moment longer, I'm wondering if I could just get a response from all three of you about the issue that we've all seen remarked upon in, in, in the political discussion in recent times, and that is the sense that governments through the COVID crisis have been listening to experts. They've been listening to science, listening to the medical evidence and using it to guide their policy. You know, the the, the great hope is, of course, the great parallel that's obviously drawn is that is so so much what is needed in in climate change and energy policy. Uh, Should we be optimistic? Perhaps I'll start with you, Kieran. Do you think we should be optimistic that governments uh, have kind of learned something here and may behave differently? Yeah, I think there is a source for optimism on this. And uh, the reason, well, first of all, we've seen the very public presence of the likes of uh, Dr. Brendan Murphy, Paul Kelly, uh, Nick Coatesworth, the, the, the chief and deputy chief medical officers, and they they have underpinned their panel of experts who underpinned basically the, the leaders moves on every front and except for this most recent spike in in Melbourne things seem to be you know we seem to be world leading on that front and as we're recording now there's a, you were just pointing out there's another 75 cases mm. uh, infections that have been uh, identified in Victoria now they are going through a massive testing program yep. at the moment but that's a considerable uptick it in is. numbers it's the largest yeah for a number of months i think that we'll end up seeing a shutdown of those suburbs in in the uh, northern part of Melbourne as a result of that. But the the other component why I'm a bit optimistic off the back of this national cabinet experiment, which has proven successful, is that what it does is also elevate the state liberal governments. And in that, I'm thinking the Marshall government, South Australia, the Berejiklian government. And by doing that, you've got much more realistic pragmatic views on climate. So Mm. I think that there will be an extension 
uh, whether it's immediate, uh, as I said before, Scott Morrison is pragmatic He and he does have a lot of political capital. I think there will be a gradual move to some more substantive policy on this front and 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 largely because of that state component as well. You've got all the states committed to net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, Matt Keane in New South Wales, very progressive front on this front, on this, yeah. front running in a big way. So I think that for a number of reasons, this is a good um, uh, you know, and hopefully lasting step towards understanding, accepting science, letting it guide public policy. Maria? Oh, I'm slightly more pessimistic, I guess, uh, partially because I think it's always easier for well anyone really to trust medical advice because uh, it's sort of existential t- to life. I mean, I, I don't doubt that most of the climate deniers within the coalition party room, for example, also very happy to listen to their GP or cardiologist in terms of yeah, their absolutely. in terms of their physical physical health. I mean, the the reason why uh, climate uh, science is is harder to to manage there. Oh, sorry, my dog is also wanting to participate in this conversation. Uh, no, he's very welcome. Uh, the other, I'm <laughs> keep patting she? you. Sorry. Um, the other the other reason why um, climate science is far more contestable, or or uh, not, not contestable is the right word. It's that. Uh, Climate action requires restructuring the economy. It requires restructuring effectively how society relates to government. And that means big losers, people who are very powerful. And I I do think Kieran's point about state liberal premiers um, is a good one uh, because you're right. Like there is, uh, I guess, a sort of uh, greater kind of realism there. And that's perhaps potentially because, you know, they're also managing water, which is a significant area of political upheaval, you know, what we sort of forget about in the cities. But, you know, in the last New South Wales election, both seats that surround the Menindee Lakes were lost to the National Party, right, um, and and handed over to the farmer shooters and fishers. And, uh, you know, we saw big swings at the last election. And the reality is for these communities, none of these issues have, have gone away. They are acute. Um, and as, the, as we go back to summer, some of the uh, preoccupations uh, of bushfires, of water scarcity, of, you know, the very visible signs of the frailty of the environmental system upon which we live will we'll likely come closer to front and centre. And so, you know, I guess... I guess I'm I'm not necessarily convinced that governments will necessarily want to listen to scientific advice, but the politics of the situation might create an opportunity for a pragmatist like Scott Morrison to to act in a way that is palatable enough to his recalcitrance and just enough to convince a electorate that doesn't really want to spend much per person to do something about climate change. Well, Frank, I think you'd probably say that at least um, we've seen from politicians in this COVID crisis, not just the the, the public policy value of follow, following scientific advice of evidence-based policy and the like, but the political protection that comes from it. Is there something at least in that for um, for governments making a shift in climate policy? 
Yeah, I think there is. And I also think that in this context, it's really important to think about uh, what happened with the bushfires, right? So it's really not that long ago then that we thought that the defining event of 2020 was the bushfires, right? Um, and so, um, you know, in a nutshell, I would characterize it like this. What came out of that um, was a very clear acknowledgement uh, from this conservative government that climate change is real and that climate change poses a big problem to Australia and that we need to respond to that problem, right? Um, but that response is largely framed in terms of disaster risk management and in uh, precautionary measures to deal with climate change, right? Rather than Australia really putting shoulder to a wheel to help the world reduce emissions and thereby limit the extent of future climate change, right? So in a sense, it's, it's a shift from climate denialism to climate action denialism. Okay. Um, hmm. and that's a much, much harder thing to deal with because, you know, th that's where, um, a renewed trust in science doesn't actually help you that much because the problem as it is framed is one of economics and the problem as it uh, ultimately arises is one of vested interests and a reluctance to embrace change, right? Um, yeah. There's a lot of, you know, Maria mentioned it before, there's a lot of very powerful um, and influential and well-resourced players that have a lot to lose from a faster transition away from fossil fuels, and that's what's playing out. I mean, this is this is not unique, of course, to climate change, right? This is what's happening in any, it's what happens in any major economic industrial transformation, but this is a really big one, right? Um and one that to an extent will be policy driven. And so uh, it's extremely um, contested in that way. And it also comes back to a regional element here, right? So um, the potential losers are very heavily concentrated um, in particular areas of the country, right? The Hunter Valley, New South Wales, central Queensland, right? And so yeah, you've got marginal electorates. Um, you've got very visible uh, impacts on local communities, on unemployment, on livelihoods, and that plays out very strongly in the political process. And, you know, that newfound trust uh, in science, uh, I fear, doesn't really help us overcome that particular hurdle. Mm, that's uh, slightly depressing, but I guess uh, very hard to argue with. Look, now let's let's uh, shift to uh, another area um, which is related more to the economic crisis that we're in at the moment and, and the health crisis too. Frank, uh, you've recently released a research paper with some colleagues in which you advocate using this moment to achieve twin objectives of stimulating the economy but also improving the economy, improving our society, including, I guess, energy and climate performance, but probably in some other areas as well. So can you just uh, you know, very briefly outline what it is that your, your research paper uh, does? You know, it sets out criteria for evaluating options for uh, stimulus spending. Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. And so really, you know, this, this working paper that, that a group of my colleagues and myself released recently at Crawford School here is, um, we, we're really just talking common sense here, right? So we're saying, mm. so governments collectively, federal and state, right, um, are about to put a few billion dollars on the table for infrastructure stimulus investment, right? So this, this was always on the cards that we would shift from business support and 
income support for the short to medium term to uh, more direct government investment activities, you know, as we're realizing that it's not an immediate bounce back or V-shaped recovery economically, right? Um, so this is, you know, I mean, this is not new. This is classic Keynesian uh, stimulus spending. Uh, this is what was done in many, many countries, including Australia in 2009 during a global financial crisis. Okay. So the question then is, what, what do you want to achieve here? And for, you know, the answer unanim unanimously will be jobs, 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 right? And Prime Minister made it very clear that that is his government's uh, vision, right? But of course, you know, you can create jobs in, in many different ways, right? So, you know, uh, Keynes at the time said the easiest way to create jobs is for government to send out one team of people to dig holes, right, and then to send out another team of people to fill them in again, right? But you can do a lot better than that. Um, you can actually create value for the future, right? Um, hmm. And you can create positive social outcomes. You can create positive environmental outcomes. And really, you know, what we've done here is bring together through a fairly exhaustive um, uh, literature review as to uh, what different organizations are saying about that uh, and, and what kind of criteria you can distill, right? Um, and then, you know, on the basis of these criteria, you can identify some broad areas um, of infrastructure investment that would in general do well uh, on that kind of set of, of criteria. Kieran, we've uh, been down this road before, as, mm. as Frank was just saying, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, it's amazing to think in, in our careers that we've sort of so quickly experienced the GFC and all the sort of, you know, juddering changes in policy that that brought about. And mm. then, you know, a dozen years later, we're in an even more uh, dramatic situation. Uh, and of course, the objective, even back in 2008, 9, 10, was about those twin objectives that Frank's talking about, simulating for the purpose of you know, revving up the economy, creating jobs, but also delivering value. Now, that was strongly behind Julia Gillard's um, school halls program. It was strongly behind the the, the blighted uh, pink bats home insulation program. So these things can can go well, but they can also go awry. Uh, I, I personally wouldn't put the school halls program in the awry category. I think it was a, an extraordinarily good program. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the, these are... Uh, this is a well-travelled road, isn't it? And it carries some risks for government. Yeah, it, it does. But just to to go to this, um, back to something Frank said earlier, because I, I, I want to touch on this in the context of this argument and the paper that Frank's done on the need for a, I guess it's a green-led recovery, essentially in layman's terms, because the reason I'm optimistic about it is because while we, there are those obstacles in, say, the Hunter or Central Queensland in a political sense, the overwhelming momentum in terms of finance, I think, um, and it's not just academic research. To just this week, we've got Beyond Zero Emissions being launched, a one million job project with Mike Cannon Brooks launching it from Atlassian, and Chris, um, Christiana Figuera is the architect of the Paris Climate Agreement, also involved in this an Australian initiative to create 1 million jobs in this space. So I I don't think the legacy industries, are they're, they're not operating in a vacuum. Now, while they've been successful at this point, I think we might be very close to a tipping point here. And this crisis is, a, is responding to it, recovering from it. The, it there are 
this momentum towards a green-led recovery, not just in Australia but around the world and with the likes of Atlassian founder Cannon Brooks and this Million Jobs project, I, I just I think that there's a real commercial heft coming behind the sort of argument that Frank made a bit earlier. Kieran, can I ask, who who is the government um, listening to? I mean, obviously the kitchen cabinet is is sort of highly influential. You know, the, the treasurer himself is um, an important architect of uh, the NEG, uh, for example. I mean, you know, is there that appetite within, uh, I guess, the government at these sort of higher circles to sort of engage in this or really will it turn on whether or not there is a political consideration that this will be good politics? And therefore, yeah. then we will get this outcome. I oh, know. Look, I think that, as, as I said repeatedly, the, the prime minister is not an ideologue on this. He's a he's a pragmatist, actually, across the board in terms of his politics. You could say the same of Josh Frydenberg. So the two most senior individuals are want to get some progress. They know there's been a stalemate that it's hurt investment and energy investment certainty. Uh, in recent years. They're well aware of that. Josh Frydenberg went through a hell of a time when the neg was knocked over. He was very, very... Um, knocked over himself, really. He it? was knocked over himself, and, and but also in a political sense felt like it was a huge loss for him. But at the time, I mean, he's recovered, obviously, in a political and uh, and personal sense, but it was that was tough for him. I, I think that they will find that they will try and look for an avenue where they can get some progress. And as I said before, they've got the political capital and they've got the crisis within which to well, get something a, done. That's a very good point, yeah. Frank, what, what do you think um, a, a project, a, a, an infrastructure project, just to get sort of more specific about it, what should an infrastructure project deliver? Um, because you can you can make a case that just about any, building anything creates jobs in the process of building it. Uh, but what are the kind of criteria that you think could be applied to to projects to uh, to deliver long term benefits uh, and also to avoid, I guess, um, falling into the trap of something like the the, the the home insulation program, which had a whole lot of unintended consequences, really. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, there's obviously um, a whole range of objectives and uh, you will want to evaluate them in a so-called multi-criteria analysis, right? So you'll definitely want the jobs, right? Um, and you'll want ideally some lasting economic benefits, some productivity benefits, right? Make the economy uh, work better, um, create the kind of investment that will get us on a better economic trajectory, right? That will create business opportunities in years and decades to come, right? Um, you have the opportunity to achieve social goals, right? So, for example, supporting marginalized communities, supporting low-income earners, supporting regions of the country that are doing it particularly tough, right? Um, you can, with some projects, uh, you may be able to harness uh, local environmental benefits. And, you know, you can make a very clear argument that this is the opportunity to put in place things in abroad, right, that support the transition to a really low carbon economy, right? And the first obvious thing there is to avoid investment that actually lock in the opposite, that lock in high carbon investments, right? And so on that list, right, broadly speaking, you've got 
all kinds of renewable energy investment. So what we've seen in the last two, three years is an enormous boom in wind and solar installations, including large scale. Um, wonderful thing, Australia really among the major countries has the highest per capita installation rate of wind and solar, okay, per mm. capita. Um, but obviously, you know, with the recession coming, there's every risk that this investment pipeline will tail off, dry up, maybe even, right? Um, so this crisis is, in a sense, a chance to do what, what the market has failed to do in, in, in terms of uh, the, the overall energy policy framework, but also to pick up some of that um, that drop-off to, to compensate for some of that drop-off as a result of uh, just a recession. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So that's um, that's how you'd think about it. You know, last few years, we've had a certain uh, amount of annual investment in, in renewables. Um, it would, in many ways, be a real shame to let that drop off again because the industry is geared up to do that. Um, it's really clear that, you know, these are economically sensible investments for the long term. And so out of that arises an argument for government yeah, and it's more likely state than federal governments to just simply, you know, support that uh, that uh, that pipeline through government contracts, right? Could even be built on a government government's book uh, books and privatized later, right? You can think of many different models, um, but. You know, I mean, you've touched on pink bats already, and you know it, these are so the the scheme back in two thousand nine for for home insulation, ceiling insulation in particular. These are very classic areas where you can do stimulus spending quickly and effectively, right? Because you're not you're not subject to long term approval processes. You don't have mm. kind of mm, uh, locations that are in a stick somewhere, right? You've, you you can do this everywhere, and you can do it in a way that very easily builds on the available building industry capacity. So, um, uh, pink bats, and it's really quite difficult. quite good in that quite good in that sense too, because it can be quite diffuse. You can put money into yeah. the hands of lots of people, lots of tradies, lots of companies uh, at the same time, and so you're getting uh, quite a good diffusion of uh, economic activity right across. That's right. And what you'd like to see though is energy efficiency in the board, right? So that yeah. can be different kinds of insulation. That can be better better windows and doors, that can be a shift from gas heating to electric heating, high efficiency stuff, that kind of thing, right? Um, and you you don't need to do that in a sort of a state-run program uh, like the Rudd government did at the time. And, you know, what what really sort of, you know, led to that, uh, those huge problems in terms of lives lost with the Pink Bats program. You, you can leave that to private industry. And, you know, when you just want to contrast that government is actually going there with this home uh, builder program, Right, subsidies for home renovations and home building. Um, yeah, they want to support the building and industry and the tradies, right? I mean, yeah, you can ask whether that's actually strictly necessary compared to other of areas of the economy that that do need perhaps um, the stimulus more badly. But if you're going to go there, right? By just giving money to people who already have uh, renovations underway or planned, and by giving it to people without any kind of prescription of objectives, right, you're really missing out on a lot of benefit that could be had, right? If conversely you put a billion dollars or ten billion dollars into improvement, you know, energetic improvement of public buildings and public housing, right, then you'd achieve a real benefit socially by cutting the energy bills and improving living conditions for those on low income and by cutting the energy bills um, of, of state and local governments into the future. So, so that's the kind of public benefit that you'd really want, right, out of expenditure of public money. 
One of the other things, of course, that would be good to, to see done, I, I think there's pretty much universal agreement on this uh, across uh, the big business and peak organisations representing big business, market economists, welfare agencies, pretty well everyone except the federal government at the moment, and we're not sure what their position is going to be as a result of this, but you can tell where I'm going here. I'm talking about increasing the unemployment benefit. At the moment, we know, of course, it's called Job Seeker, and it is uh, effectively the doubled uh, new start allowance. All the talk is a lot of speculation about what happens when job seeker comes to the end in um, in September thirty. Does it uh, does it remain? Does it get phased out? Does is there a um, a compromise position where people are getting more? Um, that's obviously one way of providing quite significant. Uh, cash stimulus to the economy yeah. because people who are who are uh, reliant on that level of income they're not savers they're spenders. Yeah, well, my understanding of what they're looking at at the moment there were reports in the last few days suggesting there'd be a permanent uh, increase to to New Start and there might be down the track. But my understanding is in July when the Treasurer hands down that uh, statement that it's more it'll it, it again be a temporary move. So the $150 a week um, increase that was reported, that figure is not right. It's going to be- I think it was 150 a fortnight. 150 a fortnight. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that figure is not accurate. It's going to be um, temporary as well. It's not a permanent. So I, I think that we probably see a more generous uh, but temporary measure on July 23rd. And um, you know, I don't want to be fulsome in my praise for Josh, <laughs> Josh Frydenberg, but I think- that's the right way to go right now because we don't know how how deep, how long. I mean, it looks like it's going to be a long, long time that we're going to have double digit uh, unemployment or near near to it. But I think it makes sense to give it another uh, six months or so with an increase in a temporary framework, and then obviously they can't go back to what job job seeker was the dole. Um, no. For so many it's reasons, it's unconscionable. It's also the economics of it make zero sense. Yeah, and there are going to be so many more Australians relying on that um, next year. But I think when you're and looking it makes at zero it, political sense, too, it does. It, it yeah, does, that, and I think of you, that number. Yeah. If you're looking at a permanent change, the earliest I would see it happening is October with the budget. More likely, the next budget come uh, early next year, but I can't see them going back. It won't go back to what it was. It's just untenable. Yeah, we're getting very close to time here, but I'll just get a comment from uh, both Maria and Frank. Perhaps you first, Maria, uh, on on that on the politics and economics of of, of the dole. Well, I guess I concur with what what Kieran said, and, and just sort of underline the the point that um, the rate of New Start was not only. Uh, cruel, uh, shameful, and uh, completely Punitive. against the consensus of virtually every single interest group. I mean, um, you know, apart from the general uh, reasons why we have welfare states, uh, the way that it reflects on our society about how we look after our most vulnerable, If even if those arguments aren't persuasive to you, uh, business has been advocating for many years now about the fact that you simply you can't get a job on Newstart. You can't buy shoes. You can't look presentable for an interview. Yeah, and I would just add, look, uh, 
remind ourselves that we are one of the highest income countries in the world, right? Um, and, and we do, in general, take a little bit of pride on how we run this society and, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, unemployment benefits or, in general, social security payments at the level that they have been are just not compatible, right, with what we can do and, and, and what we collectively actually want to see for this country. And it's also just simply economic madness to be push, to be pushing people into poverty that way. Yes, uh, we'll, uh, we'll wind up on that note. Uh, look, just before we go, I might just point out that another colleague of ours, uh, also a visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy, Peter Martin, has a piece in the conversation as we record today, this being Monday, um, where he's, uh, it's a regular series, but they've surveyed 22 economists, uh, the conversation has, in 16 universities. And uh, it's a very, it makes for very good reading, So, uh, but it's obviously it's quite depressing reading because uh, these economists are predicting a very dire economic situation uh, going forward. It's, 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 I guess, a fair bit worse. And that goes to my, my comments at the beginning of this podcast, that there's a real sense now that we're entering a quite, quite a hard stage. Um, we're talking about unemployment as we just have um, – Around, you know, in double digits, peaking in double digits, uh, and still being 7%, uh, according to most economists, by the end of 2021, with wages still flat. Um, we're talking about China shrinking by 2.3% this year and, uh, and perhaps growing by as much as 4% next year, which is not bad. But, um, really, you know, with the Prime Minister, um, stating back in, uh, some weeks ago that, uh, Australia has a plan to try and grow at 1% above trend. And, uh, but you know, to 2025, in order to sort of grow its way out of this, that's going to be extremely difficult. When you look at the global, uh, the global forces here, the the downturn being so universal around the world, and of course Australia being so latched in to the international economy as a, as, a, as a big exporter. Uh, look, thanks very much uh, for your time today, Frank. Can I just get you to um, say where people can read uh, uh, your pieces? You have you had one in the conversation, and uh, they can, if people are interested in reading your um, your research paper, where they can find that. Oh yeah, thank you very much. So just Google my name; that that should do the trick. Um, other than that, on the website of the Center for Climate and Energy Policy at A New Crawford School, you will find all of these materials, uh, research papers, and and links to op-eds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, collected in there. Uh, the website of the uh, Center for Climate and Energy Policy at Crawford School. Thank you. So so thank you to Professor Frank Gotzo. Uh, thanks to Sky, uh, Sky News uh, Chief Anchor Kieran Gilbert and of course to Maria Teflaga who's with me each week on this podcast Um, we'll look forward to talking to you again later in the week Uh, and until then bye for now bye thanks very much great to chat thank you Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 